0: News Talk Breakfast with Kira Kelly and Shane
1: Coleman. In association with AIR on News Talk.
0: In recent months, much of the news coverage has been focused on shocking images from across the globe of extreme weather events. But just what's causing these events and what is the devastation they leave in their wake? Well, joining me, first of all, to tell us about one weather troubled part of the world at the moment from flooded Hong Kong is Kate Candy. Kate, good morning.
2: Hi, Pat. How are you?
0: I'm very well. Um, Tell me about what happened in Hong Kong, because it seems the rainfall broke all sorts of records.
2: It has, Pat. Uh, The past Friday, just gone there, we've had a black rainstorm, which seems to have kind of taken people by surprise, because just the previous week, we'd had a Typhoon 10, which is the highest category storm that you could get. So there there was lots of preparations in place for that. Um, and the, the schools were closed, the stock exchanges closed, businesses were all closed and, you know, everybody kind of buttoned down the hatches. Um, but then the following Friday, there was little to no warning from the night before it went from there's three tiers of the rainstorms, amber, then red and black. And it went from amber to black in, in about 25 minutes. So by the Friday morning, there was, you know, no expectation of the level of rainfall. And I think it was the the most amount of rainfall that they've had here in 500 years or so. So uh,
0: Now, how, how prepared is Hong Kong for those kind of weather events? I mean, do they have kind of protocols that they can swing into action?
2: They do usually yeah they absolutely do and they're very big on on you know Hong Kong's obviously built on a mountain so they have a lot of slope maintenance because landslides are a big concern so in in previous years where it's happened they've concreted over the slopes to stop these landslides but I think this was this was something that it came fairly quickly so a lot of the protocols hadn't been put in place as they usually had So there were people stranded out in cars overnight and extreme flooding and landslides and and sinkholes opening in the roads and such like.
0: Now, has the rain departed? Are you now, you know, basking in sun that will dry out everything?
2: Well, I wish I could say that we were, but it has been fairly miserable over the weekend. It's definitely it's not half as bad as it was. Um, but there, I mean, the, the, it's still kind of interfering with things, the, the bits of rain that have come in the last few days. So everybody here has got their fingers crossed for a bit of sunshine soon and that the kids can go back to school, please.
0: <laughs> so the, the kids are not back at school. What about the stock exchange? What about uh, public transport?
2: That has all resumed. They're very quick at getting things going, but obviously on... Um, Saturday, the day after the Black Rain, they were still trying to deal with the aftermath of the typhoon the week before. So there was a, a huge amount of trees and everything down, and, and state, the storm drains were blocked. So everything kind of reopened, but it's it's kind of you know created a, a waterfall effect type of domino effect, just having the two things so close together. So the kids today went back to school, thank God, and. Uh, yeah, hoping for one weekend without something like this happening. Mm-hmm.
0: And tell me, do the residents of Hong Kong make the connection with global warming or is this just bad luck with the weather?
2: Oh no, I think very much so. And it's been it's been speculated a lot that Hong Kong has in the past been very prepared for its sort of extreme weather events at this time of year and during the summer months. But obviously it's it's become a lot more frequent and a lot stronger um, and there's no confusing the climate change element to it. So they're saying that they'll have to rethink the way that they're going to handle things going forward.
0: All right, well, uh, I hope everything improves there, that the, the sun comes out and does a little bit of drying. But uh, uh, Kate Candy, an Irish person living in Hong Kong for many years. Kate, I remember when your dad headed off to Hong Kong Uh, many years ago, and we all thought he was mad.
2: I know, and indeed he might well have been, Pat.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's been a good life uh, for you, I presume, in that uh, fairly exotic part of the world.
2: It has, it has. The sunshine will certainly help once it comes back.
0: Kate Candy, thank you very much uh, for joining us on the programme. Now, that's one example of how extreme weather events are taking place. And to maybe explain why it's happening and where it might be happening in the future, we've got uh, John Sweeney, climatologist and professor emeritus at Maynooth University. John, good morning.
1: Good morning, Pat.
0: So you heard from Kate there what it's like in uh, Hong Kong, but we could have talked to people in all sorts of different parts of the world about uh, the extreme events they're enduring.
1: We could indeed. And I think people will remember summer 2023 as the summer of extreme events all across the world. Uh, We know it's been the warmest summer on record. June was the warmest month ever recorded. Then July exceeded that. uh, And August also was the warmest August ever um, recorded. But we've seen a whole plethora of extremes around the world ranging from forest fires in Canada and Hawaii and Greece and so on. And we've seen extreme temperature records shattered uh, all across the world as well. And for for climate scientists, well, I have to tell you, it's not all that unexpected. And we've been warning really about this kind of uh, occurrence for many years now. And it's really arising because when you change the mean or the, the average distribution of temperatures by even a small amount, the extreme, the tail end of that distribution changes is much, much more radically. So for even a one degree rise in temperature that we've had globally, then the extreme frequencies uh, at the edge of that distribution, if you like, change enormously. And we're seeing that happening. We're seeing it happening as well, I think, this year, uh, coming home to roost much more in the developed world, not necessarily a problem confined to Africa or Asia, but we're seeing, if you like, climate change becoming much more of a problem in the big countries of of North America, of Europe. And, uh, of course, we've seen some horrendous uh, uh, temperature records being reached in many parts of the developed uh, world as well. And we know the causes of this. Uh, We know that it's it's been driven by climate change. One of the great advances, I think, of the past uh, 10 years has been the science of attribution. I've been plagued for 30 years by uh, people asking me, was this extreme event caused? By climate change. And I've always had to say, well, it might have been, it might have been contributed to, but we don't have the evidence to say it was certainly not something that could be considered natural. But I'm very pleased to be able to say now that because of advances in climate science, we can now attribute individual events to the probability that they would have occurred um, without climate change and with climate change. And that's done by simply running climate models with low-level of CO2, pre-industrial levels and current levels, and asking the, the computer, how often would we get an extreme event like we had in southern Europe this summer in the absence of climate change? And what comes out is quite scary. Um, it comes out as saying, well, uh, climate change made that drought in southern europe uh, 300 times more likely it made the events in uh, in our summer in much of northern europe maybe twice or three times more likely so the evidence is there now that we can no longer attribute these extreme events to nature they're undoubtedly uh, if you like, uh, weather on steroids, they're undoubtedly enhanced and multiplied in their severity, in their frequency, by what we're doing to the atmosphere. And that's mm. quite a, a salutary lesson, I think, for our policy makers to take on board.
0: Now, let, let's throw that old argument back at you then, John, where people will say, oh, I remember when we had a wet August like we've just had. And I remember we had a scorching June like we had this year. And I remember when we had a scorching September uh, like uh, we had in the first week of September uh, and so on and so forth. And there's all the stuff about St. Swithin's Day uh, and there's a, 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 you know, weather understanding of why if on St. Swithin's Day, it's a beautifully still blue uh, sky vista we have that it's going to last for 40 days. There's all that sort of stuff uh, going on. So there will still be sceptics to say, look, I'm afraid it's still just weather.
1: Yes, there will always be sceptics. I don't think you'll find many sceptics in China saying, I remember when we had 52.1 degrees of warming, or many people in Hong Kong who will say, I remember when it was flooded this badly before. Um, So, yes, there will always be people who deny um, and and who say, okay, we we will always experience those uh, in the future because we've experienced them in the past. But what's quite clear now is that records are being broken. Uh, We haven't had a July as wet in Ireland as we had this July, for example. Uh, we have approached our all-time temperature record uh, in the last couple of years, even in Ireland. So we're seeing those kinds of extremes occurring with more severity. Uh, and the kind of events, we know from the IPCC that the kind of event that maybe was only occurring maybe once in 50 years, and yes, it, it would occur once in 50 years perhaps in the last century or this or, or the pre-industrial times, is now occurring something like uh, five times in 50 years and in the next 10 years, if we begin to approach uh, 1.5 to 2 degrees, it will be occurring once in every three, four years. So it's not that those those events have not been experienced before, but that they're now going to be experienced on a regular basis. This is, if you like, the new norm, the new mm. thing we have to get used to as, as part and parcel of the price we so, pay John, for not controlling climate.
0: If that 100-year flood uh, event, which we might have in Ireland, for example, Uh, suddenly it's going to become a one-in-ten-year flood or one-in-five-year flood. Uh, Obviously, we have to build our infrastructure to cope with that. But also, I'm sure the insurance companies are not blind to these stats.
1: Well, I hope not. Um, one of the issues that, uh, of course, we've had in Ireland is that we work out that once in a hundred year flood based on, on data from a climate that has now changed. And that's a wee bit dodgy to do. We can't really anticipate very accurately what's the once in a century event is going to be when we're on a constantly upgliding, if you like, curve of change. And I think the insurance companies who, who have traditionally been in the vanguard of, of reacting to this because it's really hitting them in their pockets very hard if they don't. Uh, they have been quite strong in terms of anticipating things in many parts of the world. But there is still a conservatism in the insurance industry. There's still a tendency to use models which are based maybe on what the London office tell them, for example, rather than using very good climate data from within Ireland, which is very much available, very much uh, accessible, and enables them would enable them to be much more find in the estimates that they do for those kind of extreme events. And I would hope that they would therefore begin to, uh, if you like, uh, adapt and customise their policies to reflect what is actually happening in Ireland rather than Mm -hmm. what is uh, generally the norm elsewhere.
0: uh, There's something that uh, I read over the weekend, and it's uh, very interesting, about grassland versus trees as carbon sinks. You know, we're being hammered here because we have lots of grass and we're grazing cattle on them and all the rest of it. And there's no doubt if the cattle eat the the grass and then they uh, emit methane, that is a greenhouse gas. But the idea that in so many parts of the world, you've got forests, which are great carbon sinks. And lo and behold, they go on fire and they emit enormous amounts of carbon into the atmosphere. Do we need to rethink our strategy?
1: I think it's true that um, if you look at the kind of carbon emissions that have occurred from the forest fires this summer, um, they would be equivalent to about half of the EU annual emissions uh, of greenhouse gases. That That's quite a sobering thought, which makes us begin to wonder how good an investment that long-term forestry is in some parts of the world. Now, we know in Ireland, even if we go out and plant trees today, they won't start saving carbon for five to ten years. In fact, they will be generally emitting greenhouse gases because of the disturbance of the soil uh, that they that they cause when they are being planted so i think we can't look to that kind of sequestration as a long term investment uh, what we really have to do is stop emitting that's the ultimate thing we have to think about and of course in ireland our forestry policy has not been very successful we're actually uh, our forests are sources of greenhouse gases rather than sinks of greenhouse gases so, Why, we why is that,
0: John? Explain that to me, because well, when you're growing Sitka yeah. spruce, uh, for example, it's, it's done for the building industry, so it goes into timber-framed houses, it goes into roof trusses, and the carbon in that timber is sequestered for as long as the house lasts.
1: Yes, indeed, that's very true. But uh, in Ireland, of course, we planted many of our forests thirty, forty years ago, and they're now reaching maturity and being cut down. And we're therefore cutting them down quicker than we're replanting to replace them. So, on balance, therefore, we're, we're actually losing that source, and we're we're creating this uh, losing that sink. We're creating a source instead. So, uh, yes, you're quite right. Of course, if we could put all of our wood into uh, long-term storage, uh, that would be great. But in reality, we're, we're using a lot of it for export. We're using a lot of it for burning. Um, so we're not actually creating in terms of long-term wood products. I mean, CO2 remember is something that lasts in the atmosphere for centuries. So we have to, if we want to take it out of the atmosphere long-term, we have to put it into stores which last for centuries. And yes, wood wood in houses is, is a relatively good thing, but you know, there's lots of ways we use wood that are not going to provide that long-term storage that we really need. Right.
0: John, thank you very much for joining us. John Sweeney is climatologist and Professor Emeritus at Maynooth University. News Talk Breakfast with Kira
2: Kelly and Shane Coleman in association with AIR on News Talk.